Thank you, Schaefer's. All beauty is all beauty speaks of thee. But that's a different series than 1 Corinthians, which is what we are in today. The title of today's sermon is A Message for Peacocks and Roosters. A message for peacocks and roosters. You know, we're going to kind of stick with the uh, children's theme here. And kids love animals. Take a kid to the zoo. They're happy all day. So sticking with that theme, I thought we would stick with a little, a little animal theme here today. And to talk about peacocks and roosters. And I'm hoping that this... Uh, simple illustration will help to explain what is a little bit of a complex passage of God's Word we have before us today. Peacocks are very beautiful. Very beautiful. In fact, I read a book recently, had a whole chapter dedicated to the feathers of the peacock and how complex they are and all that all the particular feathers that have to come together symmetrically and perfectly in order for the eye that you see in that is that plume is that the right word of feathers uh, to to be that and uh, just marveled at the engineering of the peacock's feathers they're very beautiful their beauty really serves no functional purpose other than if you are, I guess they're all male peacocks. I had somebody actually come up to me after last night's service and to, and to tell me that um, there's peacocks and then there's peahens. I called them last night female peacocks. So <laughs> I stand corrected now. The feathers of the peacock are there to woo the peahen to himself. So, uh, basically, they're there to draw attention to themselves, which, uh, women, you know, this is highly unusual for males to do, to try to draw attention to themselves. Uh, But, uh, wives, you might think about, uh, look at that picture and remember your husband on your first date. This is what he was doing. Um, So, male peacocks basically are famous for drawing attention to themselves and showing off what they can do. That is a peacock. Roosters, on the other hand, are uh, famous for something else. Roosters are famous for crowing. That's right, crowing. And a rooster crows to signal the beginning of the day. That the morning has come. The sun is rising. Look, everyone, the dawn of the day is here. And so they take a deep breath and the ah, 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 is what they do. And what they're saying is, look what is happening. The sun is rising. The day has arrived. So, big difference between peacocks and roosters. Peacocks draw attention to themselves. Roosters draw attention to something else. Okay, now kids are with me. Adults, did I go too fast? Do I need to explain anything there? You understand this? Okay. Now from this perspective, let's remind ourselves of what Paul has said thus far in 1 Corinthians. He begins his letter by 
reminding them of the great work of grace that God did when he began the church at Corinth through the preaching of Paul when he was there. And Paul celebrates um, God's work. He celebrates the spiritual gifts that were on display. He celebrates their fellowship with Jesus. And the reason that he's doing this is that these people needed to be reminded of what it was like when things were good. Because over time, things had become bad. And all the things that he praises them for at the beginning of the book, he is going to be basically raking them over the coals the rest of the letter because they've messed it all up. We've said it before, this is the most messed up church in all of, of, the, of the New Testament. And so we're, as we study them, we're going to get encouraged to realize that even a New Testament church was this disastrous. Uh, and they indeed they were. So Paul is basically saying, hey, do you remember how this thing began? What are you doing? Like, what are you doing? God has saved you by the cross of Christ, which is folly to the world, but is the wisdom of God unto salvation. And with that now, we come to chapter 1, verse 26. And why don't we stand today for the reading of God's word? Could we do that? For consider your calling... Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thank you. You may be seated. 1 Corinthians was written to the the city of Corinth, the church at the city of Corinth. And we've talked about this city and how it was kind of the New York City and the Las Vegas combined of its day. Very wealthy, very uh, well known for its uh, academics, very well known for its athletics. And so the city of Corinth, like any great city, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, whatever it might be, had a social strata in it. There were the VIPs, lots of VIPs in the city of Corinth. And these would have been uh, the philosophers in the, in the school. These would have been the rich people. These would have been the politicians. Uh, these would have been the athletes. There were people that as they walked around the city of Corinth, people were like, oh, oh there goes so-and-so, right? He's very important. She's very important. The celebrities of the day. Uh, Much like the city of Chicago, right here down the road, if you uh, know about the city of Chicago, these would be the people that live live in the equivalent of the Gold Coast of Chicago. They shop uh, the department stores in the Magnificent Mile. These are the people that are at the black tie events and the fundraisers and the celebrity events in Chicago, the kinds of things that we see the pictures of and we go, oh, it'd be so cool to go to that like once in my life. We'll never go. We will never go. 
But there's some people, they go to that stuff all the time. They are the VIPs of Chicago. And Corinth had that same kind of social strata going on. Of course, if you have the have, the haves, then you also have the have-nots. And Corinth also had uh, the have-nots. These were not the people that lived on the Gold Coast. These were not the people that shopped at uh, the Magnificent Mile. These were the people that shopped at Target and uh, called it Target, I think, in the first century, which is what I sort of like to look at it as. But uh, So we might expect that if the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, the now famous Apostle Paul, was to go to Corinth and to start a church... Of course, he would go to the very important people first, right? This is, he would target the politicians. He would meet with the celebrity athletes. He would meet with the, uh, the rich and the famous, the VIPs of Corinth. That's where the church would begin, of course. Not the case. And this is what Paul now is reminding the church of. He's basically saying, listen, you are not, you were not, when you were called, a part of the VIP of Corinth. That's what he says in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So Paul's saying, hey, you didn't live on the Gold Coast. (laughs) That wasn't you. You were not power brokers in Corinth. You did not come from famous families in Corinth. Now, notice that he does say, not many of you. And the reason that he says is that there were some people that were from privileged backgrounds. The gospel permeated every uh, facet of the Roman Empire. So there were, in the early church, some people who came from some kind of privileged background. We've come across a few of those already. Sosthenes, Crispus, Gaius, Erastus. There are others that um, were of, like, noble birth. Paul himself was born a Roman citizen, which was the highest distinction of the day. So there were some from this, just not very many. And the gospel of Jesus Christ has always had a far more receptive hearing amongst the disenfranchised of the world, the poor, the needy. This is what Jesus said. It is, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is hard for the rich to be saved. Now, why is that the case? Why is it hard for a rich man or a rich woman to be saved? Because when you are rich, you can trust in your riches and allow your riches to make you think that you are a little special, right? And the nose goes up in the air. And there are no noses up in the air when it comes to the gospel, the rich. I'm going to just walk through the ones that the categories he brings up. The wise and the powerful. It is hard for the wise, worldly wise, and the worldly powerful to enter the kingdom of God for the very same reason. I remember I talked with a politician one time who said to me these words. He said, why do I need God? After all, I am the, and then he said what his position was in the government. Imagine that. I don't need God because I am the... That's hubris, isn't it? Hard to be saved when you think you're a somebody. 
Not many from noble birth, Paul says. Again, interesting that he would say that because he himself was of noble birth. But it is hard when you are the equivalent of a Rockefeller or a Kennedy or some other name in our culture that would be of distinction. It's hard when you are born in a family not to think that you're actually something special. I've always liked the little quip. Some people are born on third, some people are born on third base and think they hit a triple. <laughs> oh, look at me. All my life, people have fawned over me. I must be somebody special. And it's for this reason that the gospel has always had a better hearing amongst people that were are the disenfranchised of the, of the culture. For example, in the first century, in the Roman Empire, there were 60 million slaves. And slavery back then was... Uh, this was this was a bad thing. You were an it. You were a possession. You had no personhood. You had no identity whatsoever. The gospel comes along and says that God loves you as a person, that you are an image bearer of his, that God loves you and Jesus died for you. And the slave in the Roman Empire, the first century, for the very first time in their life, found personhood and love and hope and the gospel spread like wildfire through the slave population of the first century. And that kind of thing, it's just always been that way. In fact, history provides some glimpses of what people that are of the VIP perspective think about Christianity. Let me give you one example. This is uh, a guy by the name of philosopher in the Roman Empire by the name of Celsus who writes sarcastically about Christians. This is in the year 178 AD. This is what he says. Now again, he's being sarcastic, but you get his perspective. Let no cultured person draw near, this is to the gospel, none wise and none sensible. For all that kind of thing, we count evil. But if any person is ignorant, if any person is wanting in sense and culture, if anybody is a fool, let him come boldly to become a Christian. We see them in their own houses, wool dressers, cobblers, the worst, the vulgarest, the most uneducated persons. They are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nest or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp or worms convening in the mud. Welcome to the frog symposium. Here, what are we doing? We are worms convening in the mud here this morning. And, but this was the mentality amongst the VIPs, that Christianity was for the common folk. It was for those beneath them. Sound familiar? Think about our world today. Think about our American culture today. Think about in uh, politics or in the university or in Hollywood or some other place where the VIP people are. What is their perspective on anybody that would say that they are a born-again, Bible-believing Christian? What do they do? You, their eyes roll, don't they? Just, oh, you're one of those, you know. And you can just see the disdain 
that it's just written all over their face for anybody who would be so small-minded enough to think that we're sinners and there's a moral code and there's a God and that, that Jesus bore the sins of the world and put their trust. What kind of fool would believe in something like that? That is so beneath people like us. Yes, it is. By intent, it is, is what this passage is saying. A couple more examples. The former governor of Minnesota says about religious people, he says that organized religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. And he uh, made the uh, hilariously self-contradictory comment after this where he says, I can't stand intolerant people. Wait a second. Here's a better example, a more serious example. Friedrich Nietzsche was a German philosopher 100 ish years ago. And Nietzsche grew up in a Christian home. His dad was a pastor. He came from a long line of pastors on his dad's side, long line of pastors on his mom's side. And so he grew up in a Christian home and he came to despise Christian doctrine and teaching and became a very brilliant, very well-known philosopher. And he saw Jesus as a weakling and a failure. Don't tell me that somebody that died on a cross is the savior of the world. His conclusion was that Jesus was a fool and his famous statement was that, is, was that God is dead. Hitler embraced Nietzsche's philosophy of strength dominating over weakness and very nearly conquered the Western world. Ideas have consequences, folks, and bad ideas have bad consequences. Nietzsche had no room for a weak and dying Savior. And to this, God's word says in verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So here we are now at the really at the at the crux of what Jesus is or what Paul is saying here. Why does God do it this way? Why does God why did God create a salvation by faith in a dying son of God? Why do it that way? And the reason that God does it this way is for his glory. And we talk about this all the time. Here we are on this subject again. But let's just come to it fresh again and to remind our hearts of why God does what he does. The overarching theme of all of Scripture and all of redemptive history is that God is doing what he is doing in order to magnify and to display the glory of himself. His glory is his worth. And his worth is is infinite and his glory is as well and so god is displaying his glorious being for all of the world and all of the universe and everyone to see and to worship 
And so that is why he created this world. The heavens declare the glory of God. They're shouting something to us that God is glorious. The whole earth is filled with your glory. The whole earth is filled with your glory. The whole earth is filled with your glory. We just sang that. What does that mean? That everywhere all around us, what you've experienced today, what you have seen, the colors and the, and the sky and music and touch and taste your coffee this morning, it all is saying something. God is glorious. The earth is filled with his glory. And so this whole thing, the universe, is a song about the glory of God. And in the story, God creates this beautiful place. Into this glorious universe comes sin. And Romans 3.23 tells us that sin is falling short of the glory of God. It is mankind falling short of what we were made to do and to be, which is worshipers and God glorifiers. Sin falls short of that mark. And God protects his glory and rightly judges sinners and punishes them. And that is why the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. We die because of God's glory. We also live because of God's glory. And in God's plan and in his love, he displays the glory of his infinite love by sending his son, Jesus, to die on the cross and to bear the guilt that our sins deserve, your sins deserve. So that now there is a way for God to be, God's justice to be satisfied in the cross and his death for us and God's glory to be magnified in the saving of sinners who don't deserve it. You get that? So the cross does both. It punishes and it magnifies. And that is how God did it. And so we are restored to what God, by faith in Christ, we are restored to what we were made to be in the first place, which is to be worshipers of God. I can say to every single person here today, you are not made for yourself. Which is why your life stinks if you're trying to live that way. It just doesn't work. We were made for something greater, something better. We were made to worship our creator and to have a relationship with him. And this is restored by faith in the gospel. So that now I am what I was made to be. Magnifier of the glory of God. And this is what God is doing. This is the story of all of redemptive history. His glory. Isaiah 42 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will give to no other. Isaiah 48, verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give it to another. This is one I read this morning. I'm just going to throw this in as well. Ephesians 1. Why is God doing what he's doing? Why has he done what he has done, Christian, in your life? Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we uh, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This whole thing is to the praise of his glory. God is magnifying, displaying his glory. We are ascribing glory to him by the way that we live. Now for him, 
So central to all of this, all of the redemption of sinners, is the glory of God. So here's the question now, listen. If you were God, if you were God, and you wanted to save sinners who are essentially peacocks and want to take credit for everything, how do you go about saving prideful peacocks in a way that they can't take any credit for it and that you can receive the glory for it. Like, what do you do? How do you do that? Well, you could say, uh, I think I'll have them earn it. I'm going to create a works-based sort of way that they can kind of make their way to me. And if they do it right and they get there, then they're good. But now that won't work, will it? Because if somebody gets there by what they do, what are they going to do? Wah, peacock, woo, right? Look at me, look what I can do, look what I have done. And then they'll be all boastful in the presence of God. That won't work. I think that I will, tar- if I was God, I think I'll target the VIPs. Let's start, with, let's start at the top. Let's, let's reach the rich people. Let's reach the smart people. Let's reach the pretty people. Let's start with them and then let the salvation sort of trickle down to everybody else. But wait, that won't work, will it? Because if, it, if, if you're saved because you're pretty or you're saved because you're smart or you're saved because you're rich, then what are you going to do with your salvation? You're going to say, well, look at me. God was wise enough to save somebody like me. I was pretty enough. I was smart enough. I was powerful enough. Look at me, peacock, right? So that won't work. So if you're God, what are you going to do to save sinners in a way that they got nothing to boast about? Well, this is what God has done. He has turned the human way of thinking about things completely upside down. So that the world values wisdom. And God chooses to save with something that seems foolish. The world values strength. God gives them weakness on a cross. The world values VIPs. God gives them what is low and despised, Paul writes here. Or as verse 28 says, the nothings. He saves the nobodies. That's the plan. Why? Verse 29, here's the center of it all. So that no human being might boast in his presence. Friends, the gospel seems foolish to the wise, and it seems weak to the strong, and it seems beneath the dignity of the VI people of the world, but it is this way by God's intent. So that the VIPs and the pretty people and the rich people and the strong people and the politically connected people have nothing that they can claim that they have done if they are saved. God saves not the rich, not the strong, not the powerful, but the humble. Humble people. So that nobody can say, hey, look at me. Look at me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. Oh, it's through faith. Great. Where do I get that faith from? It is a gift. It is a gift so that no one can boast. So here's what I'm saying is that there are no peacocks in heaven. There are no peacocks 
in heaven. There is nobody that will stand before God and say, God, look at me. Look what I have done to earn my way to be here. There is none of that. Friends, we have done nothing. 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 He has done everything. 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 He has done it all so that salvation is all of grace. It is all of him. And like everything else, it is all about him. By intent, so that no one can boast. And friends, we ought to be pretty glad about this, I think. I mean, if God simply targeted the smart, the beautiful, uh, the powerful, and the rich, I mean, look around. There ain't many of us that would make it, right? So I'm pretty glad that God chooses to save the humble. Because there isn't anybody who can't humble themselves before the Lord and repent of their sins and put their faith in what God has done for them through Christ. Verse 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And here Paul is just reinforcing what he is saying. That God is the source of your life. You are not the source of your life. God is. And oh, by the way, Christ is the one who is your wisdom. He is your uh, uh, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Well, that pretty much covers it. God is the source. Christ is all these things. There's There's nothing left for us to be like, well, what about us? That's the point. Okay? That is the point. Christ has done it all. Faith is a gift. And what do you brag about that you receive as a gift? Quick illustration. How many of your families like to play card games? Okay. Not too many. I grew up in a family that likes to play card games. I grew up in a family we played, I can't even tell you how many thousands of games of Rook that my family grew up playing. Tons of it. So, but this illustration applies to whatever your card game is that you like. Where, if you've been playing in a card game with your family in particular, and uh, it's Thanksgiving, it's Christmas, or some other uh, reason to be together, you are there and you are playing this card game, killing time, waiting for the football game to start, and you uh, are playing this game, and it can get a little bit tense, at least in my family, because uh, we like to win in my family. Uh, All of us do. So we're playing the game, and we're all very serious about it. And if you play any kind of card game, then it's at some point in the card game, somebody gets that magical hand. You know, that mathematically improbable hand where they, you get it, and you, like, open it up, and it's, like, all Trump, or it's all face cards, or all whatever it is that you really want to have that allows you to dominate the game. Some family member will get that magical hand. And you can tell, can't you? Because you know these people. 
you can't like poker face your family because they know you. And so you looking at your sort of sicko hand and, and you look over and there's your brother, your sister, or your mom or dad, whoever it is. And you can just see the look on their face because there's like the little, the little smirk that begins in the corner, right? And like their breathing changes as they're like. <laughs> and you look at them and you're like, oh, you've got the hand, don't you? And what do they do? At some point they will take a deep breath and they'll just kind of go, yep, 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 yep. Read them and weep, boys. Read them and weave. And don't you hate that when they do that? Because, first of all, you're upset that you didn't get it. But you think, this is what I think to myself. I look at, you know, my family member and I think to myself, you didn't do anything to get this. This was, this, this is not a sign of your brilliant play. You simply picked the cards up. That's all that you did is you picked them up. It was dealt to you. It was given to you. Why are you glorying in it like it's something that you have done? You received it. Easy illustration to understand, isn't it? Why in the church would there be anybody who would begin to get a little high and mighty about themselves and to begin to act like they're sort of a VIP in the church? which is exactly what was happening in Corinth. They were getting full of themselves. They were dividing into cliques. We're going to find out later some of them weren't waiting for others as they were having the Lord's Supper. They were just going ahead and just just totally full of themselves. Peacocks is what was developing in Corinth. Why, why would you do that if everything that you have spiritually was given to you and you have done nothing? Where's the basis for getting all puffed up? There is none. There are no VIPs in the kingdom of God. Just one. The big I. P. Christ, who is our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. So that leads to the question, well, what are we to do then? Okay, if I am not to be full of myself, what, what am I to do? And this is how he concludes This section, verse 31, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Did you know there's a right kind of bragging? There is a good kind of bragging. That's hard for us to understand because we're so accustomed to the 99.9% of bragging that we hear or that we do is about ourselves and trying to convince other people of how wonderful we actually are and for them to know how in our own opinion how wonderful that we think that we are we could do a whole message on bragging because probably all of us have had an experience where you had a conversation and you walked away i have i walk away from some conversations and i want to i want to punch myself in the mouth because i think i think to myself why did i feel the need to share with this person How wonderful I think I am. Anybody relate to that? Okay. I'm glad because last night's service couldn't at all. And uh, (laughs) I felt like I was the only sinner in the church last night. This passage isn't encouraging that kind of boasting, but 
is saying that there is a right way to boast. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, what does that mean? He is quoting from Jeremiah 9 here, Old Testament, a passage, one of these just really cool Old Testament passages, Jeremiah 9. Let me just read this to you. This would be a great one to memorize. Here's what it says. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What do men boast in? What are you going to hear in your school or job tomorrow? People that are going to boast about how smart they are, how successful they are, how rich they are, how how happy they are, whatever it is. They're going to boast about these things. Look at me. Look at how wonderful I am. God says all that boasting comes to nothing. If you want to boast, boast in this. You know me. You understand me. That I am a God of righteousness and justice in the earth. You boast in a relationship with the Lord. And God says, I love it when my people glory in knowing me. That's the right way to boast. To boast about him. Which brings us now back to where we began. Peacocks and roosters. Peacocks and roosters. A peacock draws attention to himself. Look what I can do. Look at how beautiful I am. What is a rooster famous for? Crowing in the morning. Right? If we knew chickenese, this is what we would hear. This is what we would hear as we hear the crowing. We would hear this. Listen. Look at the sun. The sun is rising. I want you all to get up and to see it. I want everyone to see the sun. And here is the question today. Is the contour of my life and the motivation of why I do what I do, peacock or rooster, am I trying to magnify myself? Am I trying to uplift myself in man's eyes or even God's eyes? Or, like the rooster, am I trying to point the attention to something else, to somebody else, the S-O-N, and make much of him. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And I got thinking about this. What would be some qualities of somebody that is living this way? And I just made a partial list. You could add more to this, but it seems to me that if I'm boasting in the Lord, I have profound gratitude to God for what he has done to save me. I am 
more God than me in my conversations. That I'm okay with not getting the credit for things. That there is lots of thanksgiving to God in prayer. That there is lots of thanksgiving to God in my conversations with people. That I am quick to forgive other people for Jesus' sake. That I have a kingdom first mentality. That I have a servant's heart. I'm generous to God. I have great joy in praising him. Which I could just plant on that one for a moment. Either privately or corporately. When we get together, it's just a bunch of cock crowing is what we're doing when we get here, right? Look at how wonderful he is. Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Loving others enough to share the gospel with them. I've never seen a rooster that only crowed for Christians. And then John the Baptist's words, he must increase, I must decrease. Here's the core of it, though. Here's the core. You can know if you have this passage in your heart, if this is true. I can't believe that God would save somebody like me. I can't believe that God would save somebody like me. Song lyrics capture this, I think. Here's two of my favorite. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wondering heart? Not because of who I am, but because of what he's done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. Here's another favorite. I'm going to sing this one for you. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me?